Welcome back to the 430 Movie. We got our expert programmers here to curate Fantasy Theme Week's of classic film from 1998 film directed by Steven Soderbergh called Out of Sight yes Soderbergh directs it with such a sort of confident self-assured style Lex Luthor in Superman what is it about Gene Hackman that uh... his performance it's off the charts but still in reality fiendishly gifted 1981 Sam Raimi Opus The Evil Dead oh yes fine choice Sam Raimi invented entirely new ways to get shots that should not have been possible with the amount of money that he did not have charade oh directed by Stanley Donnan it's a textbook screenplay it's just effortless and there's not a wrong note in this movie can't say enough great things about it we'll be back next Friday with an all new episode of the 430 movie wherever you listen to podcasts join us now for the 430 Movie. The 430 Movie Podcast is available weekly wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free Electric Now app. Download it today. If you think you felt a great disturbance in the force, you're not wrong. Ed Gross and me, Mark A. Altman, have a new oral history coming out from St. Martin's Press. It's Secrets of the Force, the complete, uncensored, unauthorized oral history of the Star Wars saga. So wherever you buy books, audio and video pick it up today and you can learn the secrets of the force and don't miss our oral history of star trek in stores now and of course nobody does it better the complete oral history of james bond in digital hardcover paperback and audio that is all sundays on electric now tune in to the official leverage redemption after show a very distinctive podcast with me yell teagle and my co-host felicia michelle each week we'll be breaking down another episode of leverage redemption plus we've got exclusive interviews with the stars as well as some games and we'll even be showing off some amazing fan art so after you watch leverage redemption on imdb tv you'll definitely want to join us here to catch all the easter eggs and behind the scenes fun the official leverage redemption after show a very distinctive podcast sundays on electric now If you like listening to this podcast, you'll love watching us on Electric Now, the free video streaming app featuring video versions of all your favorite Electric Surge podcasts, along with full seasons of The Librarians, Leverage, the exclusive Leverage Redemption After Show, as well as Flash Gordon serials, hysterical comedy specials, and much more. Download it today from your favorite app store or watch us on Roku, Stir, DistroTV, Zumo, Sling, or Plex. Welcome to Best Movies Never Made, the podcast where we explore interesting and infamous movies that never made it to or through production. I am your co-host, Josh Miller, and with me, as always, is the man, the myth, the legend, mm. Mr. Steven Scarlatta. How you doing too, Josh? I'm doing pretty good. How about yourself? Beautiful. Uh, and we are very excited to be joined by our friend, who is a writer, director, producer, editor, sometimes actor, all, <laughs> all around <laughs> Jack of all trades a mike of all trades let's say mr mike mendez how hello, you doing, mike? hello how are you uh <laughs> and actually right up top i am going to plug that you should download the electric now app which is a free app that allows you to watch video of our podcast which half the time i would say why do you really want to look at it here is a perfect time though because i really i don't even know how to describe the amazingness that is mike mendez's 
It's not even his background. It is his home. That is the my things home. We're yes. seeing. There is a xenomorph <laughs> right over his shoulder. An amazing wall. This is the kind of wall that I feel normally people would steal off of like Google image and use as their fake background. But this is your actual is real. Yes, home exactly. of amazing action figures. And in fact, it looks like everything we're seeing here are the like big old school G.I. Joe sized Action. These are uh, these are the hot toys. I'm a big, big toy nerd. Let's get that out of the way. Uh, hot toys are, are these uh, Chinese from uh, from Hong Kong, to be exact, uh, company that uh, makes these very high end uh, detailed figures of Star Wars, Batman, uh, Superman, you, you name it. Uh, they, they do it. And so this is my these are like my prized possessions, if you will. So. So, yeah. Uh, which is actually, I won't segue to that quite yet, um, but your toys is something I want to bring up as sure. far as a thing. You've made, I should say, Mike, for those who don't know him, again, done all sorts of things, long career. He's directed movies such as The Covenant, Big Ass Spider, which you've probably heard of, Lava Lantula. Um, he is a writer, producer, and director of the anthology movie Tales of Halloween, which I think won a Saturn Award, right? That is correct, yes. Uh, well, you've won two Saturn Awards. Yes, one for Big Ass Spider, one for, for uh, Tales of Halloween. Many, oh, so many films that fill up the the Walmart dollar bin. Yes, I, I have I have made so. Uh, he also were, directed an awesome Dolph Lundgren. Movie. I was gonna say, "Don't Kill It," which yeah. uh, I believe is somewhat directly responsible for him winding up in Aquaman. Right, that is true. That is true. Very few people know that, but that is true. Yeah, uh, and again, we can talk about that a little bit later. Uh, but you're also a very accomplished editor. I got it. It's funny, like the friends like you, I think, because I should say Steve and I both know Mike. This is kind of fun here because pre-COVID, I feel I would see you constantly just at parties, sure. at screenings. Uh, you used to host a, uh, I almost felt like it would happen like twice a month, karaoke right, at right, Los sure. Amigos in Burbank, right? Uh, which I would frequent very much. Uh, and now I, you know, I, I hardly ever see you. The good old feel... days, man. It was a whole different life. Will we ever get back there again? I don't know. I don't you know. know so, but... so I'm not sure, but you do appreciate that kind of life that, that used to exist about, you know, we used to go to screenings all the time or, you know, beyond fests, or obviously you have your, your, your midnight shows that you used to do and, and, you know, all, all sorts of stuff, concerts and conventions and monster paloozas. And now, you know, now it's, it's home. It's the lockup. We're back here. We had like, I don't know. I mean, from the point of the vaccine, to about December, I had a good run. I had like the month of no. October, November. And for example, <laughs> I saw you at some parties during that night. Nice, exactly. Uh, yeah. Once I got, period. I got the vaccine. It was, it was all about. It was good times where we're here again, and I had a great time. Like all of uh, October, November, and then Omicron happened, and then as you guys know, I'll let everyone know now. I believe, I believe, I'm making a first as your first COVID positive uh, yes. guest. Because, uh, we have uh, timed that before we start recording. That normally uh, we're recording this in Dean Devlin's love lovely uh studio with you know little people sitting behind a glass wall watching us record Is he, are there really little people that that that, that he has they're normal sized people but oh, they look okay. smaller <laughs> through the window god know. damn i was uh, some willy wonka <laughs> finish and i was like it's like as soon as we're better we're going there i like but, to uh, think those are dean's life goals become a, <laughs> a willy wonka figure at some point uh but you know for years now we've been recording this uh, over Zoom because of COVID, and this, you know, this is 
now we're finally doing it somebody with COVID. So. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I hope I, you know, hope not for long, obviously. Uh, but this was a surprise as of Thursday, uh, which is a, a, a Monday we're recording now. But uh, yeah, no, honestly, it really uh, was very much uh, tucked away trying, you know, Omicron just started hitting everybody. Like all of a sudden, a lot of close friends had it. A lot of people I knew had it. And I was like, okay, this is serious. LA kind of had peaked out last year at 17,000 positive cases a day. And now we're 40,000 thousand easily every day and oh, that was before home yeah. tests uh you know and so so god only fucking knows how many people have it so i was like you know what i'm gonna not go to movies i'm not gonna say no to parties um, didn't do much during christmas and go to go out during new year's um and um you know and lo and behold still uh i just had a sore throat one day and i had a a home test and I was like, you know what, I'm going to I'm just going to try this because I don't know this sore throat's like the main symptom. And sure enough, I got I got COVID. Couldn't tell you how I got it. Uh, I have some suspicions, you know, <laughs> uh, but but it, they're very casual things. They're they're very normal day to day life things. They're not. Uh, oh, I went to a party or I was on a you know, went to a restaurant and, you know, it was, uh, you know pretty average thing so be careful because i i'm under the impression now that it's like yeah we're just gonna get this shit this stuff if it's this contagious like yeah everybody's gonna get it so i'm and look and again i'm ha- super not preaching do whatever you want but I'm, I'm happy to be vaxxed and happy that it's just kind of a minor inconvenience when i know people's parents that have died or people's friends that have died or cer- certainly we all have friends that have gone to the hospital you know so i'm very lucky that i can kind of be here and kind of going like i, I got a fever a little bit you know uh yeah so. the important thing is you're not doing the zoom from a hospital bed with the no. tube in your nose so that would be cool though too <laughs> that i mean that would be kind of get the electric now the app so you can watch a video of yeah Mike exactly struggling to breathe from cedar sinai <laughs> um, i would do it because i feel i i probably know more about films that didn't get made than i do about films getting made because i feel i have much more films that didn't get made yeah so. <laughs> uh, well which we will get into on this episode i should also say Kind of our anchor point we to have Mike on was to talk about a version of Sleepy Hollow that yes. you worked on. But we will be covering your career and anything and everything. And technically, obviously, that is a movie that did get made. And I yes. will just tell you my version that didn't get made. But it's the same film. So, you know, yeah, same yeah. producer, same production company. It was the same. Film. I mean, in some ways, I personally, I find those almost more interesting because that comes up a lot on this show. There's the movies that like just never happened at all. Right. Um, but they kind of exist in this vacuum. I, there's something really fascinating about a movie that did get made. Then you find out about all the different people who tried to make it. I mean, obviously, this whole I'm podcast sure, spins I, off I'm of sure Jodorowsky's gone, Dune. I'm sure this has come up um, a lot in, in this podcast, I would think, is, is that, you know, there, there's a lot of movies that in there like Wes Craven's Beetlejuice, uh, you know, because he was attached to that for a long time. And trying to think oh um or that sammy davis jr is who tim burton wanted to play beetlejuice or michael keaton (laughs) sure uh and uh, i'm trying to think of other ones that uh i I know a lot of people were attached to robocop for like a long time uh and in fact i just had worked with bruce dern he told me that he's like he turned down robocop which was just mind-blowing to me wait who is he supposed to be the old man no he wouldn't have been old enough for no bruce dern would have been robocop robocop oh my god wow yeah he turned it down because he said his face was covered the whole time oh man that would have been so wow, short-sighted a, uh, that would have been a very blue collar robocop vibe I, I, feel. I, I could totally see it. i think he would have killed his boddicker uh by the way just just saying i think there was a missed opportunity Ooh, yeah. there 
so anyway, but yeah, the, there's so there's those mind blowing things of how different life would be with a, a Tom Selleck, Indiana Jones, or, uh, mm-hmm. you know, a Marty McFly, um, uh, Eric, Stoltz. Eric Stoltz. Yes, exactly. Which so. It's funny, uh, like growing up, it, it, it's interesting how certain things like the Eric Stoltz back to the future. I feel like when I first learned that, however old I was, like there was no way to confirm it. It was like, right. is that even true? It, it felt like the idea of like, no one was ever going to see that footage. And now I actually feel like that's almost, I mean, I'm sure the average person doesn't know that, but certainly I feel the average person even remotely interested in movies has heard about that. And maybe even now seen like footage. Right. Absolutely. It's insane. It's something it. I never thought I'd see. And, and, you know, I feel bad. I mean, it's just like, wow. I mean, it's just how often does that happen? Of like, we're going to reshoot like the last three weeks of footage because we're just want to change the lead. It's just not working out. It's just like, <laughs> that's amazing. You know, it's like that. I don't think that happens very often. You know? So, yeah. What was it? I think Apocalypse Now didn't, wasn't um, Harvey Keitel on it for a few weeks before oh, they had a then they had to recast it with Martin Sheen because he just wasn't working. Right. I could be wrong, but I'm almost positive that was in the Hearts of Darkness documentary. But the Eric Stoltz thing. Yeah, I'm dying to see some of that footage. All I was able to see is that one still. But, you know, I guess he just a, I think on some of the, the, the later Blu-rays and stuff. Yeah, I exactly. Like, is it on there? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, now they just straight up like it, it used to feel like this dirty secret. And maybe it was that they didn't want people to really know about. And now enough time has passed. They're like, yeah, yeah, here's some stuff with Eric Stoltz. Right. Sure, well, yeah, uh, totally. But you know, what's crazy about that is that because they got rid of him, they had to recast the girlfriend because the girlfriend was like too tall for Michael J. Fox. I believe like they oh, had no, a fire. No, I thought you were going to say because that is true. My favorite thing building on that was uh, and one of those again, just interesting what if things was be- when it was Eric Stoltz, they cast a different guy as Biff, who I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, ended up playing one of Biff's sidekicks, one of his like you know, cheer on guys. Um, but it, they were just like, he's the same height as Eric Stoltz, so he doesn't seem intimidating enough, which is why they ended up casting him. Now I'm brain farting his name, the great. Oh, uh, um, uh, oh, God. Yeah, I have geeks, COVID. Yeah. I have this now excuse at least today. But, yeah, you have uh, an excuse. <laughs> I'm I know. Biff Tannen, but uh, shit, what the fuck? Uh, I should know this. Um, well, edit this part out. No. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, they, they, that, that actor they cast because he was taller than Eric Stoltz, but then they ended up bringing Michael J. Fox, which I think not, made him seem extra huge because Fox was so short. That's the crazy thing about memories that I was about to jump in as like, oh, you mean the sidekicks, Casey Giamasco and Billy Zane? Uh, but then <laughs> that actual Biff, I'm like, um, and I like him. He's a good actor. Thomas, F- Thomas Th- F. Wilson. Thomas F. Wilson, of course. I was right. on the tip I'm of my glad we got yeah. there. That's, yes. <laughs> that's one of those things where I just know when I'm listening to a podcast and you're like screaming in your car. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. People are. I did well, not know about any of this, though. I had no idea. I thought it was only only Marty that was changed. That, that's even extra mind blowing. Uh, well, well, well I, I know before we get into your thing, the, the other thing that fascinates me about the Back to the Future was that once they fired Eric Stoltz and they brought in Michael J. Fox, like he was doing family ties and he would do a day. He'd do his day of family ties. They drive him to Universal. He'd nap in the car. Yeah. get over there, learn his lines, then do an entire night of Back to the Future and then back the next day to Family Ties. Like, 
how insane of a schedule is that? It's it's great to be 22, isn't it? Is it right? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I that's just a think... thing that that seems possible when you're that age. When you're when you're in your 40s, it's like, oh fuck, no, I can't do that. I <laughs> oh, I, I know because he was working on Teen Wolf and he saw that they just were getting into production of Back to the Future. And he was like, oh man, I'd love to be in that. That's like a Spielberg movie, and da da da. And then next thing you know, it and he's like, I'm working on this Teen Wolf thing, and you know. But he got to work on it anyway. I, I don't yeah. know. I'm fascinated by the making of that movie. It's oh, so sure. It's classic. Absolutely. So. <laughs> uh, and I now realized uh, I, I, I segued us off of this. Uh, originally, I was trying to when you started talking about seeing Mike at parties. And I was just saying <laughs> that, like, why I always think it's fun having friends like you on is people that I've now known for quite a while. And, you know, talk about things. But I also feel like when you're I'm like, what are you up to? You know, really, you're updating me on your projects, things you're about to direct or just directed or trying to direct. Sure. Uh, And then when I was looking you up on IMDb to kind of get some like dates and stuff correct, like realizing like all the different things you've worked on that I feel like I'm like, oh, I didn't I didn't know you worked on beavis and butthead at any point I, I, I currently work on beavis and butthead funny enough actually that's because i was gonna say like for a lot of industry people you know you have your your stuff you're trying to do and right. then your day job yeah uh and you have i would say to the average person who's trying to break into the business is the enviable thing where your day job is still in fact part of the industry it, it, which I is have that a very I have a very cool day job. I don't always have very cool day jobs. Sometimes I have very shitty day jobs. But I more mean that, like, uh, you, you know, you might say that you know your rent payer a lot of times is being an editor on yes, other people's absolutely. projects. Oh, hundred percent. I, I, yeah. I can, I can proudly say that that since 1997, since I made my first feature, I've exclusively worked in the entertainment industry. So that yeah. that I, I've hundred percent made my living solely either editing, directing producing or acting so so that that's great but sometimes you you know you don't always get to work on the great there's some there's some grim times though man there's there's some living in this industry there are some bleak bleak jobs that you have to take i mean i've never you know i've never cut a a porn film or a snuff film or anything like that uh (laughs) but it'll be interesting i'm open to it you're talking to a guy who wrote a trilogy of National Lampoon straight to video movies. So Look, I get it. it. It's, a, it's a long, <laughs> proud history. How did Wes Craven start? Wes Craven started out in porn. So, so uh, you know, so as an editor in porn. So I feel like doing the editing day job thing is not the, the worst thing in the world. But no, I've had to cut. I think I started out, uh, I think my first editing stuff was after after i mean again and it's life is crazy you i started out as a director you know i started out very young i got my first film into sundance when i was 22 well actually maybe i don't want to interrupt you but i was going to say maybe this is a perfect segue the perfect to we always say give us your origin story the, 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 like the what up and down journey okay so let's my even build story. up to that first film well, let's do it. All right. So uh, I was born and raised in, in L.A. So I, I feel that is the one leg up that I had in my life is that I started here. So that that was good. Not with any industry connections or whatever. But, uh, you know, my parents um, were from El Salvador. They came here. They opened a Mexican restaurant on Hollywood Boulevard. Fun little fact that has nothing to do with anything. But when they did uh, Once Upon a Time in uh, in uh, <clears throat> Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and they redid that block, uh, those few blocks in um on Hollywood Boulevard to be that old, 
you know, 1960s Hollywood, that was where my, my parents' restaurant was. They didn't recreate it. Oh, I, wish sure. that, I wish that I was, I was getting so excited. I yeah, I was hoping that would too. be, but it, yeah. well, it was that that area. So and it sucks. I, I was out of town when when it was happening, but it was uh, just mind blowing to see the Pussycat Theater and Fredericks and all these things back to the way it used to be. I would see the pictures. I was like I was editing a Critters movie in South Africa, but I but I'd like, <laughs> you know, like look, look in here and, and go like, oh, my God, I, w- I want to be home. And so that, that was amazing. <laughs> Anyway, so uh, Wait, they so, flew you all the way to South Africa to edit the Critters movie? movie. Yeah, totally. I swear to God, my life's like Forrest Gump, man. Just random, <laughs> random shit happens, and I end up meeting cool people. Uh, anyway, but uh, but, but you yeah, weren't no, named no, no. after a famous Klansman, at least. So. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true that is true so anyway but uh well i don't know if we'll ever make it back to critters but yes that is one of my many many random random jobs that i have done um so um the newest one i should say newest critters. anyway so we had a restaurant on hollywood boulevard and that's uh the closest i had come to the movie industry you know occasionally um we we'd have a um a restaurant customer that was like on work of working tv actors so uh mario van peebles was like the first uh like kind of actor that we we knew uh of, that would come into the restaurant and we're like oh awesome. my god it's, we saw you on the cosby show this week or whatever <laughs> and, and he was very nice by the way just turned 65 and that blows my mind by the way because are uh, you oh man i haven't done the because we interviewed him for steve shark doc uh-huh. uh still better looking than any of us so uh, right, sure, uh, I don't doubt it. yeah, yeah awesome. but it's just weird yeah, he was I, amazing i remember this very young you know good looking like 20 something actor so it's just great i guess it does kind of make sense because i was like a little kid so it's crazy when like you know Mario my people's are 65 today it's just like how is this happening <laughs> well, <laughs> it's just going know, so fast we forget how old we are that's yeah what exactly <laughs> you know so we're, we're all probably Wilford Brimley's age in Cocoon because that is apparently the litmus <laughs> test of how old you are. <laughs> they liked Anyway, sorry, neither here nor there. So, um, so I worked in the restaurant um, every weekend across from Hollywood Toys. And that's probably one of the things that started my toy collection, to be honest, because, uh, you know, I remember... Close proximity. Yeah, I, I w- they would pay me $2 an hour, uh, my parents, very loving of them. But, they and, you know, and I was 10. <laughs> which is probably illegal now that I think about it, but uh, it's a 10 year old family owned. It's okay. I think it is. Okay. (laughs) I I think slave labor or child labor, I think is okay. (laughs) If it's family. Uh, So I'd get $2 an hour. And at that time, and this is, this is the early eighties, you know, I I would make, uh, you know, like $40 a weekend. And I remember thinking as a kid going like, what am I going to do with all this money? Brewster's millions. Yes. Anyway, but, but yeah, I, think, I, I do think that started very early on with me, uh, this work ethic of like, yeah, you like to collect stuff and you like toys, but you're going to work for it. None of this is going to be given to you. You got to earn it. And so that's always kind of been a weird work ethic, uh, neither here nor there. So, um, Wait, I, I don't want to interrupt you too much, but I guess this is too, like that is a period of uh, Hollywood that I'm very interested in, sure. in part because the first time I ever came to L.A. or Hollywood was part of a summer film seminar that my friend Sean and I did uh, where we stayed in like the dorms at UCLA and they took us around to watch TV shows being filmed that were all canceled after one season and, you know, took us to USC to watch student films, but they took us to Hollywood and Highland, which we were all very excited about until we got out of the bus 
and we're just like, this place is sketchy and weird. And this was like the mid nineties. Mm-hmm. So like, this right. is mm-hmm. but then like, I really became interested in those, you know, like vice squad angel, like that era of super sleazy. Cause I didn't know about that. I didn't know that Hollywood, Hollywood was much like times square where it sure. was just like this, you know, well, I mean, all I can say, I mean, a couple things is it was definitely an is- a very interesting era to, to observe. But keep in mind, I, I was a child, so probably some things went over my head. But I was a child that watched a lot of movies. You did so Moonlight I as a streetwalker like Angel well, hang out with Roy say. Calhoun. I was going to say, like, <laughs> there's no question you, you could spot a hooker if you're 10 and, you know, you grow up watching movies like Angel and Avenging Angel. Of course, you're going to spot hookers. Of course, you're going to spot drug dealers. Um, and I think and that's part of the reason that, that we closed the restaurant was that there was kind of a strange uh, thing in the 80s. I think I think in um in the late sixties and like the once upon a time in Hollywood era that they portray, it was kind of like a hate Ashbury kind of like very cool, um, you know, part of town and the walk of fame and the Grauman's Chinese seat, all the things that are still there, but somewhere in the eighties, and I don't know exactly what changed, it started to get very shitty and it started to get very scummy. And all of a sudden there was a pizza place that, um, we can't prove this, but, but <laughs> it was just kind of known. There's a pizza place right like two doors down from us that that served pot or you know sold pot. Yeah, and God knows what else, but we believe because people would ask like, "Is this the place where they sell pot?" Like coming to our <laughs> our restaurant, like two doors down, and then they they leave happily. Oh, I, I don't bet, know. I'm pretty I bet sure they we... had some great like code name like, "Oh, I'd like a slice." I with don't know extra I mean, mushrooms or something. Uh, it was Extra a lot greens. of, a lot of uh, Latino community because we were the Mexican restaurant. So they would be, la mota, which is where's the pot. So I don't know if it was la mota. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Wait, did you already uh, say the name of your parents' restaurant? It was called La Casita Restaurant. And it okay. was the first uh, first Salvadorian restaurant in, in Los Angeles. So uh, so for a time. And just, it was... uh, uh, for all of our edification, what would you say? Like, what is the distinction of Salvadorian? Like uh, Salvadorian, uh, the main dish is uh, pupusas, which are kind of oh, like uh, so cheese, cheese and uh, pork filled uh, yeah. kind of dough things that are fried. Uh, and then, um, you know, uh, fried yuca and, um, oh, you know, and then, and then the the the. the regular latino accoutrements the the rice and beans and whatnot uh and then we have the you know the mexican part which is all your standard kind of tex-mex stuff or whatever so Mm -hmm. but yeah that that was generally uh you know uh uh, salvadorian food uh but we were the first one so it was very very uh popular for a time and it was quite successful but but it it, uh but the hollywood boulevard started going to shit you know and i loved it you know because it's like not only you know, in some ways you enjoy the kind of seediness because you see it in movies and stuff and it's kind of fun and dangerous, but I was surrounded by movie theaters, you know, it's like the Egyptian was still there before it was remodeled and reopened, you know, many years later. Um, you know, there, there was, there was, I think movie theaters probably every three blocks or something like that, the Pacific and, you know, mm-hmm. um, before the you know uh the el capitan was there and you know all the, but there was all these very old singular theaters long before the multi yeah the one down on vine i'm forgetting what that's right. called by the time uh, yeah. i moved here that was all just people would rent it out for their like indie films exactly and stuff. yeah but those were all so i saw all, all all sorts of great stuff there i remember seeing the the blob uh the chuck russell one and uh you know and i'd see all lots of great stuff at the, at the chinese uh star wars I saw the first star wars at the chinese uh oh, wow. indiana jones wow. the temple. yeah indiana jones the temple of doom i saw at the chinese that's a, so, I mean, 
so it's, it's kind of was a, yeah that's exciting it's weird to think to of something up. exciting of seeing a movie but growing up in minnesota when you would see the pictures of people waiting you know because i was that was the idea of the blockbuster right was these huge lines and people like seeing the movie and then getting back in line i feel they would always show the chinese Right. Uh, even yeah, in absolutely. Minnesota. So you were part of that crowd. That's cool. It, it was cool. And and I guess it was kind of an interesting way to, to grow up because it's like I we grew we lived in Eagle Rock slash Pasadena and um, very, you know, sheltered, very Catholic, you know, life. I went to Catholic school, which was in uniforms or whatever. But then on the weekends, there would be people tripping on acid and getting arrested in, in front of the restaurant. <laughs> uh, you know, I remember particularly uh, seeing this, this, I'm pretty sure she was on acid, this girl uh, fight two cops, uh, like, you know, and, and like just a full, like just, just brawl uh, in front of the restaurant or whatever. So it was an interesting, it was, it was colorful. It was, <laughs> it was a colorful way to, to grow up. And as a movie lover, cause that's the one thing, the other thing besides, coming down here uh, that I credit my parents is, is uh, that my dad was uh, was a film lover. You know, he wanted to come to Los Angeles because I think deep down he had this aspiration uh, to be an actor. Uh, you know, it never happened. I mean, I say it Did never happened. Did he do happened. any acting? I put him in Big Ass Spider uh, before he passed away. So oh, I, was, uh, I was very happy uh, to at least kind of see that journey to some way fulfilled. But yeah, no, he, he came down here and then just loved movies. And that was uh, kind of the babysitting uh, for for the kids was, you know, was like, we'll just take you to a matinee. Now, good and bad, and I think mostly good, but I'm sure it fucked me up to a certain degree. There was no restriction on what we saw. We saw whatever was Ditto. playing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so one of my first memories, I say this all the time, but it's true. One of my first memories was going in to see The Hills of Eyes at age three. Oh, wow. <laughs> seeing that canary crushed and the blood sucked was quite impactful as a child uh i swear to god that's one of my first memories just period that's one of my first memories uh also uh carrie was also uh very impactful i think i was about four uh when that came out but wow. you know but I, I got to see jaws in the theater i got to see uh halloween i saw in the re-release but uh, but I did see it in the theater as a kid. It was probably like 1981 or something, right? Maybe right before Halloween two came out, which I also saw in the theater. Um, Damn, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the Thirteenth, you you name it. I all mean, the classics, it, it, all the classics, all the classics, and and you know, and lots of movies. I'm sure I I probably shouldn't see Crimes of Passion and Body Heat and things like that. That probably <laughs> you shouldn't take a second grade or two. But you did know, your dad like? What were your dad's? Because uh, like my parents especially my dad, lovely person, but he was not, I mean, he liked, everybody likes movies. You know what I mean? Right. Like he would always sing the song that Madeline Kahn sings from young Frankenstein Okay. Uh, after the sex scene, just because he thought it was so funny, but you know, like he was never the kind of guy who was like, I love this movie. You should watch this movie. Did your right. dad have his like favorites that he wanted to kind of impress upon you? Well, he was very big on uh, big Hollywood musicals, funny enough. Uh, Camelot, Hello, oh, Dolly. He was like my dad. <laughs> oh, really? Was your dad into that oh, stuff? When, we, when they finally invented uh, CD players in cars uh -huh. and my dad got one for our like truck or whatever, it was fascinating because, again, he didn't really talk about he wasn't like, I love this music, these right. books, that movie. And all of a sudden there was just all these like show tune CDs yeah. in the truck. 
And I was like, oh, my dad loves show tunes. Yeah, like, my dad loves show tunes. Yeah, it, it's 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 very <laughs> strange. Uh, he loved opera and he loved show tunes. Uh, and I'm trying to think what else. And then just kind of more kind of historical kind of, uh, you know, Tyrone Power kind of like, uh, I'm trying to think, uh, any kind of big kind of gladiator Spartacus kind of yeah. kind of films or whatever. He kind of had a, a leaning toward that kind of thing as well. Um, mainly, I think, I don't know, he was always kind of driven by actors and stuff like that. He always loved, uh, you know, certain actors that were like, oh, you know, this one. But it was always uh, older films, Blood and Sand and things like that. You know, of the modern stuff, I think he just, I think it was just a cheap entertainment because, you know, back... In, again, this is the early 80s. I think it was three bucks for a matinee, a dollar on Tuesdays. Um, I, I knew what we did every Tuesday. <laughs> so, uh, and so, yeah, I think that was kind of the thing. And, and then from that, my brother, um, who's also a, became a huge influence because he was the movie lover. So, you know, I was a little kid. I was just the tag along. So my brother and, and my, oh, we also love James Bond movies. But, and both of them, that was a the thing they, they shared. Um, you know, whatever the new movie was. And, and often it was like Saturday and Sunday. So when I see those, you know, things about like, oh, the 1980s were the best. And I see those, those things of like Predator, The Lost Boys, uh, Robocop, you know, you see those marquees. It's like, oh, yeah, I saw all of them. You know, that's, <laughs> that's what we did. And, and I guess that was very unusual for most kids because some, you know, I'd have my friends that saw stuff on uh, select TV or on TV or whatever. I think this is a little before even HBO. Um but they weren't seeing Escape from New York. They weren't seeing the Warriors, you know? So I kind of felt that I had this own kind of weird special thing uh, that was kind of my own, which was the the kind of hard genre films, the the gory ones, the scary ones. I loved monsters. I think all, I think all kids probably love monsters, but I loved monsters. And so The Thing and American Werewolf in London were, were just religious experiences. They were just oh my God, how I want to do that. I don't know what that is, but I want to be a part of that. I just, and, and I think for, at first I think I wanted to be a writer, but then the the love of creatures became so strong. I wanted to be a makeup artist. And my brother, um, you know, was also the big film fan. And he took the, the steps that, you know, that I later would follow, which was like, he started making movies in high school uh, on Super 8 and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, Did he'd you guys have your own Super 8 camera. Uh, I, I'm not trying to think where the Super 8 camera came from. I, I don't think we did actually. The another thing that that I, I will credit my dad for, which was cool, is he was the the first on the block to get a video camera. Uh, and video cameras back then, the first ones that came out were like these JVC uh, cameras that one part was the camera and then you took half of your VCR, your VCR would split in two and it would have a strap and you literally would have half of your VCR strapped wow. to your hip where you would put the VHS tape. I don't think I've and, ever and, seen that. Yeah, yeah, that's that. those were the very first ones you Damn. would and they and they were <laughs> pretty shitty because anytime I remember like someone would like flash a light into the lens, the camera would break. Uh, like that, that was too much for it. So don't, don't put a flashlight. Like it's a great camera. Just don't put a flashlight in it. Anyway. So we had to kind of like constantly keep changing it. And, uh, from that, we got very excited about the VCR, you know, uh, cause also we were, uh, the first on our block to have a VCR. And that was very exciting to us. The idea that you, you know, you could watch movies at home. And so what we did, uh, because we're not the classiest of, of folks, uh, this was before <laughs> it was illegal, I, I believe, uh, you know, we take the, the tapes that we'd rented, which were incredibly expensive at the time. They were $90 to purchase uh, $5 for the weekend rental. 
at the one video store in Glendale that existed for, you know, 20 miles. Again, this is just beginning. Uh, and we would take our six hour tape uh, and record three movies. So we're taking a VHS to VHS on the low quality speed and putting three movies on there. So they look great. <laughs> they, <laughs> was, yeah, you just, it, you just didn't know back then. I used to do the same thing, you know, and if you were lucky, sometimes you could fit like four on there. Yeah, so that's what you did if 90-minute movies and horror movies were short, so you could, you know, really stack them in there or whatever. But anything that that was exciting to us or that we liked in the theater, like we'd get, and you know, and that, you know, that's your early film school. That's how you Mm -hmm. you watch Terminator a bunch of times, you know, uh, on the shitty, shitty version or whatever. Uh (laughs) anyway, so so uh my brother uh started making movies on Super 8 uh in high school, and it was his dream to to go to UCLA film school, which he he did. Uh and uh for me, I was kind of just more excited about the about creatures in particular. I think that's around the time, like when I was 12, 13, discovered Fangoria magazine. I think that's also a very, um, you know, in, influential, you know, life changing kind of experience when you realize there's other people like you, you know, like, wait, there's other people who don't get made fun of and, <laughs> <laughs> and aren't outcasts, uh, you know, that like this stuff. Um, anyway, and so, so uh, Fangoria was, was a really exciting find or whatever. And, and that really deepened the love for, you know, certain filmmakers like John Carpenter and Sam Raimi and, uh, you know, Wes Craven, of course. Uh, and also, you know, something that I don't think we have now, which is, which is really kind of unique to the the early eighties and Fangoria, the, the rock star makeup artist, you know, the, I was just the, the, thinking about that. Yeah. The mm-hmm. screaming mad George, the, the, the Steve, Steve Johnson, the Rick yeah. Bakers, the, the Kevin Yeagers, yeah. you knew them all just as well as you knew the directors, you know, the mm-hmm. Robbo teens and the pairings of them or yeah. whatever. And, Smith. and yeah, you're yeah. right because it was like you'd get the first issue through the mail which was about the movie and then the next issue was all about the effects right you know it would be multiple issues on one movie it was so awesome for you know and that that's oh man i used to love that because like and you said I'd, I'd love ordering stuff from the the <laughs> back of uh the, you know the magazine and i would get some uh i believe it was rob burnham's how uh berman's how to uh makeup effects lab or something it was like a three a three vhs set again incredibly expensive like two hundred dollars or whatever for the three vhs's and that told you like you know uh derma wax and you know or whatever and so that was kind of my my really my early film school was i started going into the makeup department or whatever uh my brother i would watch vicariously did you know some 16 millimeter films and stuff like and and film school and then eventually it just started to seem like how would i put it a good way to not have to write book reports uh was that perhaps my school assignment will be a movie you know that's what i did Exactly. And, and now we have the video camera and we can edit from VCR to VCR. And uh, some of my early films, which we can touch upon later, because I kind of went through a little renaissance of it, was just making films with my toys, you know, because we had all the Star Wars figures and, uh, you know, and the cameras. And so, you know, it was fun to make your Tauntaun, you know, race around or, or an ad at movie. It was shit animation because you're doing it vcr to vcr is not frame accurate or anything so i mean it was how wait how did that work because i was the same way i started out doing stop motion with the video camera my parents got until i was like oh wait this takes less time if i just have my friends do the things in the scene um but that had a setting on it like it was real rudimentary and the spaces between like it was too many frames you know so everything was like real 
Oh, it was really jerky. jerky and, yeah. Were you? Did yours have a setting, or were you seriously doing no. it like manually? Oh, pause. You know, oh God. <laughs> record pause. Record worse. pause. <laughs> sometimes he got five frames. Sometimes he got eleven. <laughs> you know, whatever. It just you yeah. Know, eventually, it would move. You know, uh, across frame or whatever. So anyway, so the, uh, to make a long story short, that was kind of my beginnings. And then when I got into high school, um, you know, I found others that wanted to make films and I found a friend who was a DP or wanted to be a DP and we started making our films on the weekends and I went to all boys school all Catholic boys school so there was no booze or drugs or girls uh so you know it seemed like well fuck it let's make movies and that's what we did for you know pretty much the entirety uh of my high school uh is we made these short films and then when I got into college uh which I you know I went to, to PCC it was nothing spectacular but you know I, I just kind of wanted to raid the equipment room I wanted to see what what they had and they had 16 millimeter cameras and eight millimeter cameras and and Mole Richardson lights or whatever and so that's when I started kind of learning the very basics of how to get an exposure how to develop your film how to cut your film or whatever and right around that time was about uh when you know things were kind of starting to move to, to video or whatever and they did have the now the frame accurate um video to video editors and stuff and you could do things kind of much nicer or whatever uh and pretty early on i just realized that I, you know I, I don't i don't think i regret this i i didn't want to be in school i didn't i didn't feel like this this was offering at once once I learned the very basics of it, now we're just watching movies and talking about them. I, I've been doing that my entire life. Uh, <laughs> so I don't think I needed to go to do that. So, so uh, I got a job uh, as a, um, and, and again, my, I'm giving my dad a lot of props today. This is another one that my dad helped me out on because he, he uh, after the restaurant closed, uh, he would, um, uh, he sold restaurant equipment. And so there was a post-production house that was opening up in Culver city and he get them, made them a deal that, Hey, if you could make my son a PA or something, you know, I'll cut you a good deal or whatever. And so they did, they gave me a job as a, as a, <laughs> as a runner in a, in a, a post-production house uh, in Culver city. And that was just kind of fun because that was at the time they were, it was like the height of VH1 or I don't know about the height, but yeah, but like when VH1, when you were seeing, uh oh god uh it's like the, the behind the music era or before that okay I, th th these kind of like it's not mtv but these kind of slow jams it's but maybe a little early cheryl crow maybe a little okay. uh celine dion uh or whatever but it was just yeah. a very 90s era of music videos which is what was airing at the time so it was really cool that you would you would see occasionally artists come in but you'd see how music videos were made and that was really fascinating to me because that was a different process than, than movies and occasionally um uh, they'd have like big celebrities come in because uh we had like a pretty advanced uh telecine uh setup that would where you would transfer film to to video so i would occasionally like someone like arnold schwarzenegger would walk in because he had directed uh, his first film, Christmas in Connecticut. Uh, My wife and I were just talking because we watched the original Christmas in Connecticut last year. Oh, that's funny. We're, we're like, we got to watch this Schwarzenegger direct because he's only directed two things, right? That and his episode of, of Tales, from, Tales the Crypt, from the Crypt, I believe. Yeah, totally. So it was right around that era or whatever. So yeah, he came in and that, that was exciting. Barbara Streisand came in. I had totally random aside. I had just uh, gotten a kitten and Barbara Streisand saw it and loved it and was like oh my god and she took the kitten from wow. me and, and, and kissed the kitten so so i was doing the, those kind of jobs uh and then um 
they think that place closed down. It, you know, I, I worked there for like two, three years and then really kind of came the decision of like, oh, what the fuck am I going to do with the rest of my life? And I think I was maybe 20 at this point, May 21. And I realized the only things I knew how to do were movie related. And the only things I wanted to do were movie related. So I should probably try to make a movie, you know, it just seemed like the only logical step to do. Uh, and there was a first feature I was trying to make. And actually, it'll probably actually, this is actually the perfect place to actually talk about that. It was this vampire movie that I wanted to make called Condemning Eyes. And at the time it was before, I think before it's time, it was Blade before there was a Blade and it was Underworld before it was, uh, before that was a thing of the vampire, vampire killer. And that's all I wanted to do. I wanted to make this kind of nine inch nails, vampire film where where vampires had guns and it was kind of like terminator <laughs> where they'd blast each other to bits because <laughs> they were immortal they would keep fighting or whatever uh and that was the movie i was trying to make and i tried to do that on uh uh front 16 millimeter uh because we had an investor who was going to give us like twenty thousand dollars i think uh and uh and we started making it. And at some point he just lost his money or something. It was like, I lost the money. I, I can't give you anymore. I think we were, we were like 30% of the way in. And that was the first time you find out the first movie that never got made, uh, you know? <laughs> <laughs> which uh, was, you know, it's heartbreaking. Of course, you have all this hope when you're, especially when, once you, I think it's the only movie I've ever started that I've never finished, thankfully. And I hope, I hope that that continues to be true. Um, but you know, all of a sudden it's like, shit, okay, we have to start from scratch. Do we reshoot it? And, you know, you're, you're 21, 22. It's not like, you know, oh, we'll just pick it up again from where we left off. You're, you're getting people to come in for the weekend. None of these are professional actors. You know, continuity is hard to, you know, oh, so-and-so shaved his head and has got tattoos now, you know, or whatever. So it, it's hard to kind of pick up. Anyway, so I was <laughs> uh, just trying to get any job I could at that point. Uh, and I would say this is definitely one of the the leaner times of being unemployed and just re really that, that self doubt, what the fuck am I doing? Uh, how am I going to get through this? You know, I can't get this movie made. So I'm going to take these PA jobs and I'd work as a grip. I'd work, you know, as a gaffer, I would work up as a makeup assistant, just what, whoever let me on set. And all these films were these no budget films uh, that were like, you know, 150,000, $200,000 budgets or something like that. But it was uh, my first, um, entry into into like the filmmaking community and i'm not going to say by any means that i felt i've made it but i felt oh i'm working on movies and i and i met people that i hadn't uh you know that that i still am friends with to this day it's where i met dave parker was uh, you know he was working at full moon uh productions at that time and that that was like real legit to me it's like you work at full moon no way mm -hmm. they make puppet master <laughs> uh <laughs> You know, when I, uh, when I was out here going to college, um, the only internship I tried to get was at full moon. And I still don't understand to this day what happened because I emailed them to try to get an internship because I was like, you know, sure. I'd read Roger Corman's autobiography. And I was like, I feel like this is the closest thing <laughs> to that happening right now. Yeah. And their response was that like they're like, we don't do internships. And I was <laughs> I was like, you don't want free <laughs> like youthful labor i just, i don't know oh uh, we like to tell people we're gonna pay them and then screw them that's the yeah, way I guess, exactly. <laughs> that's, that's the, the way we're offering it. it up for free beforehand yeah. uh yeah. oh i should uh, I and, and actually, actually before, there, but... wait what'd oh, you sorry. say steve 
Oh no, I remember always driving by Full Moon. Was that when it was on Sunset? Because I used yeah. to always wish I could work there myself at the time. So I was out here for film school. I was like, oh my God, that's Full Moon. That's you know, I used to think so highly of it too. And and that uh, actually totally reminded me. I'm going to go on a, a slight aside here, which I, I it technically is my first movie. I don't count it, but uh, because I was friends with Dave Parker, uh, they were they were looking for somebody to make something called the Bimbo Movie Bash. And the, <laughs> the Bimbo Movie Bash was a CD-ROM game that they had made, which was just clips of their you know questionable films, uh, and you know particularly the the sex ones, uh, and. Um, and you, you got to play director and, and put it together or whatever in the CD-ROM way. Now, this is late 80s technology or, or early 90s technology. This is not the slickest of, of, of things. But uh, Charlie Band had the idea of, like, I want to make a feature of, um, you know, the Bimbo Movie Bash. And I was inspired by lots of things. Uh, one, of, one of my favorite people or directors at, at the time was, I can't say this now, unfortunately, but, you know, was Woody Allen. Uh, and uh, What's Up, Tiger Lily, I thought was a very... Mm-hmm inventive way of making a first film uh which is there was a point in time when people didn't know that he was a weird creep right exactly totally (laughs) uh but you know regardless he's a brilliant filmmaker regardless of the personal life he's a brilliant filmmaker And, and so what he did when he was uh very young is he bought uh, a, a, I think it was Chinese, I, I believe, a, a Chinese film, uh, and they just redubbed it with comedians. And that always mm-hmm. seemed like a real effective and smart way to make a film. And now Charlie Band is giving us his library, uh, like, oh my <laughs> God, we can make our own What's Up Tiger Lily using, uh, you know, cannibal women from the avocado jungle of doom and subspecies. This is going to be great. Uh, <laughs> subspecies. And so, um, so I, I pitched Charlie Band that we were going to do, because it was the big movie at the time, we were going to do a parody of Independence Day. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't remember, it was Bimbo Pendence Day at some point. I don't remember what, I don't matter remember anyway but but the point is he's like yeah that's a great idea uh like get started uh and you and parker like uh you know t- you know you guys work it out you have access to the whole library and make a film and to me that was really exciting it was the first time i ever made 300 dollars a week that was that was like that was another one of those like yeah baby yeah i have, <laughs> I I have arrived to the bahamas and live like a king exactly <laughs> with burger king tonight uh anyway um so we did it and and, you know, we were having fun uh, dubbing it. And and look, we're not comedians. It's one of those things like in retrospect, it would have been great if we like were able to hire a bunch of comedians and have a real writer's room. And I think we would have done some really funny shit. But Charlie stopped us really early on and just said, like, you can't overdub everybody. And I'm like, well, then, then it's just then it's just clips of movies. He's like, right. Uh, <laughs> and, and so now we had to kind of do that, but we couldn't dub anything. And so it's just a collection of clips of movies and it's kind of cut in a way that it's kind of like a thing of Independence Day, but it's a piece of shit. And I hate that. I hate that my name's on it. It really, it's, it, I'm credited as director and uh, writer, I think, uh, as is Dave, but it was not a directing or writing job. It was an editing job, you know? And, and so that, welcome to Hollywood, there is my first feature. Yep, that's it. Bimbo movie bash. Looking at your IMDb. Uh, which is uh, available for some God unknown reason. I don't know why anyone would want to watch 
watch it. There, I don't even remember if there's that much nudity in it. So I don't, you know, it's like it's like the thing you would watch something called Bimbo Movie Bash, which is like boobs. We yeah. hardly have in there because we we were filmmakers and we wanted to uh, do something. We wanted to bring you comedy. <laughs> um, <laughs> Anyway, so so yeah, so that was going, but but concurrently while that was happening, um, I had worked on uh, a movie called Tears from Heaven, which I don't think ever even was released, and I was a makeup artist on a makeup artist assistant in that. Um, not that I knew that much, but obviously I was the growing up with the Fangoria and wanting to be a makeup artist. I, I had a little bit of skill, so um, so I, I went up to to Nevada, and it was this you know not a great film with this guy named uh, Dave Larson, who was the the writer, producer, actor, director of it, and he'd never done it before, and he kind of knew that this movie wasn't going to work out, and that he wasn't going to re re get the three hundred thousand dollars that he had put into it and at the time i remember like you put three hundred thousand dollars into this piece of shit uh <laughs> but uh which i know is nothing now but at the time when i was a kid that seemed like a lot of money uh and so he said yeah you know i have all this leftover film i have all these short ends and you know always being a resourceful filmmaker i was short ends you know and short ends for those who don't know back when you know people used to shoot on film um you know a thousand mag uh, thousand foot mag uh would would be about 10 minutes of of footage or whatever but sometimes you do your takes you only you know shoot seven minutes and so you have 300 feet there's about three three minutes left over and you'd make a stack of that and that's your short ends um and so i'm like well you have all those short ends like we could make a movie just with that uh and he was like yeah yeah we could and and so that is how uh we started on this film called killers uh which was my first film uh and we were 22 um he, i lived in eagle rock he lived in glendale so that was super convenient um <clears throat> and it was something that he would write and i would rewrite it, it was mostly like it was definitely his story but i definitely added my weirdness to it and uh you know uh, for whatever it's worth, even though he was kind of a strange individual and we never doesn't necessarily get along completely artistically, we did it. And he was actually very true to his word. And, and, you know, he's like, we're going to make this movie and we're, we, and he was able to, to raise a little bit more money. Uh, and uh, we shot it uh, around Christmas in our backyards, uh, both his house and my house, no permits, just a bunch of kids with shotguns. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we did hire an armor. So we were safer than the, the rust. Oh, really? Even then. Wow. Uh, yes. We didn't have, permits and, and and we didn't know that you needed permits and it was a very conservative like you know nice neighborhood in glendale and we literally were just shooting guns in the house like all the time and so the, police, the police kept come? coming okay all yeah. the time the police would come as the neighbors would complain of course uh we'd hide the guns they, they would complain oh my neighbor's firing his gun again <laughs> it's it's actually kind of shocking to me the because my movies have a lot of gunfire <laughs> so it's like when i even when i look at the movie now and obviously there's many takes we did of things it, it's kind of unbelievable that we we got away with that but i don't know did your neighbors know you were making a movie i guess that was sort of i was like they, they, it seems they like more like they'd be calling the police in terror rather than they, complaining they were, but they were very unhappy we were making okay. a movie uh, some were, some were supportive, but there was definitely an old woman across the street that, that, you know, 
called the cops every moment she could. And that's how we learned like, oh, you need to have a permit to shoot in your house. Mm -hmm. We're like, really? I I did not know that. Mm -hmm. That was that was news to me. (laughs) And we probably needed permits to shoot guns, too. I have a I have a hunch. I'm pretty sure that 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 the police probably need to okay that as well. I have a hunch. But uh, anyway. But we did it and we shot it, um, you know, what now seems like a, a very luxurious schedule, 24 days. Uh, and, um, you know, and, and started cutting to, together early on a very early Avid and whatnot. And then uh, we did something. And this is this is the part where the, the story takes a turn and is a little surprising. And, and sadly, I don't think could happen now because just times are different. But, you know, again, we're, we're kids. We're 22. I, I don't even, I don't even think it was my idea. I think it was, you know, my, the co-writer Dave Larson's like, you know, we should, we should send this to Sundance. Right. Cause this is right. This is right at the beginning of the Tarantino wave, uh, the Kevin Smith, this is 1996. So I think uh, what uh, Pulp Fiction had just come out. I think it's 94, mm-hmm. um, you know, so, yeah, so just after the, this yeah, is the clerks, whole Miramax fiction. indie indie explosion mm-hmm. is happening. Desperado, Robert Rodriguez has shown up, you know, all that kind of stuff. I'm reading, uh, you know, the, the handbook to the indie filmmaker Rebel Without a Crew. And and I think that was another reason that it's like, yeah, we should send it to Sundance. So we, we you know, we fill out our $50 check and, and our submission form, which I, I think is the last submission form I've ever filled out, to be honest. Really? Uh, and uh, we, we, we put it in the mail and, you know, went about our lives. And then one day uh, before Thanksgiving, uh, I get a call and it's uh, the, the programmer, the head programmer of the Sundance Film Festival, a man named Jeff Gilmore, uh, who's no longer there. Uh, but, uh, he's like, Hey, we love your movie and we're trying to figure out what to do with it. And I, I still like in too much disbelief of like, but is it in, you know, he hasn't said the words yet. He's just like, yeah, we're trying to figure it out. But, but we think, we think it's perfect for midnight. We think it's the the perfect midnight uh, opener and, uh, you're going to open the midnight section. And I'm like, uh, okay. <laughs> and, and still to this day, I, I think, and I, and I don't even know if anything is going to come close it's that was the most exciting moment of my life you know because this is this is and and life never was quite the same after that because mm. this changed now I, I am no longer a 20 you know a, a kid in his backyard making his video cameras or whatever or short films with his friends it's like i'm a filmmaker that got a film into sundance i'm premiering at midnight and um and yeah it, it was what a wave of excitement because, you know, I, I'm young at this point. So it, it is that anything is possible. You're seeing all these Cinderella stories of Rodriguez and Tarantino and, you know, Scream had just blown up and, you know, and all, all these kind of things. And it was just, just such an exciting time. And then all of a sudden I'm getting calls from, from CAA and ICM and, you know, and, and this is where it goes into a little bit of a cautionary tale where I, I think I was just, too young and stupid to really kind of realize the amazing <laughs> things that were happening to me. Cause I got it. I got an agent at ICM um, and, you know, and w- the film went and Miramax was really interested in buying it. And again, it's a very strange thing. Everybody, like all these sharks, like kind of circle around you when your movies in Sundance and, and everybody wants to meet you. And all of a sudden all and you have meetings that 
every everywhere. And again, me just being stupid is like, so is this happen to everyone who gets into Sundance? And it wasn't. <laughs> it really, it really wasn't. I was just in this crazy uh Robert Rodriguez's agent saw the movie, uh, wanted to take me on as a client. You know, obviously he was a legend to me because he was all over the the Rebel Without a Crew. He's the one that made his career possible. Uh so I'm like, yeah, that's yeah, I want I want Robert Newman as my agent. Fuck yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. Uh and, and so uh so that happened and, and I was getting um I don't want to say offers, but a lot of generals, a lot of meetings, um, you know, and, and life was good. And I, and I guess I honestly, it's one of those things that like, if I had to do it over again, I, I, I would do it differently. And the way I, I, I look at it is, is, and I kind of quote Winston Zeddemore uh, here, but like when people offer you a movie, stu- a movie, uh, sorry, when people offer you a studio movie, you say yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't, I, I, I was very much like, and I, I wasn't wrong. I, my instincts are pretty good still to this day. When I read a script, I go like, this isn't, this isn't a hit. This isn't gonna do. And I, I'd pass. And, and sure enough, you know, now I regret it because it's like, I didn't realize that, you know, these movie offers, that's finite. That is not going to last forever. That is a short window that if you don't take advantage of, of some of them, uh, they're probably not going to happen again, or at least no time soon, unless you prove yourself again and do it all over again. So, I think that's good advice. Cause that is a, a piece of advice. I usually try to give, cause you know, we have a lot of friends who become festival darlings sure. for moments off their movies. And it is that thing where, you know, I, you know, I, I didn't have my first like quote unquote success until I was already fucking old. So like I had a whole different <laughs> perspective. So I, I feel like I can get what it would be if you're 22. I was the fucking dick when I was 22. So I, I feel I very much get it, the, but the it is the idea is of like, you can only yeah. say no so many times before they stop offering you things. Right. Exactly. Is, the is the is lesson to learn is I don't know that my life would have been that much different because everything that I thought would tank tanked. Uh, so, so oh, it's like, like, what were you like, offered? Uh, I always feel weird because the movies got made and stuff like that. Well, no, tell us. Well, okay. So, so one of the, and again, look, I shouldn't say offer because they're very interested in me and who knows what that, that journey would go to. And, and it went to a very wonderful filmmaker and the film was wonderful. And I really was considering doing it, but I'll tell you why I didn't do it. Uh, it was idle hands. So that was, that was one that, that, uh, I probably could have been mine had I, had I gone that way, but I was, so the first thing I did after the Sundance stuff is I got uh, a deal with uh, Lumiere Pictures who had just done Leaving Las Vegas. I just literally just won the Oscar for Leaving Las Vegas and they want to make your next picture. And mm-hmm. I was like, hey, I never got to do my Blade Vampire thing before there was a Blade uh, kind of movie. I want to do that. And so they, they paid me so I could write, you know, my, my vampire epic. And, and I was very excited about it and, uh, you know, really was like, I remember even thinking of like, God, I don't even know if I want to be a director or I just want to direct this movie more than anything else. And, uh, and so that, so that I had that in play and then uh, which I'll I'll come back to this in a moment. And then there was this other script that I was very interested in called sleepy hollow. And I'll I'll get to that in a moment. (laughs) Uh, I'll just tell you the demise of, of the, of the vampire thing. Uh, basically it's not my, it's my own fault. Again, there's things you learn when you're young and stupid and you just are too much of an auteur and want to do, Oh, I got to do my original stuff. I don't want your, your studio shit. Uh, is that, you know, I, I, we were set up to, or trying to do the, 
the uh, vampire thing. I really wanted Johnny Depp. This is before the, the resurgence of Johnny Depp. This is an astronaut's wife, Johnny Depp. I was going to say astronaut's wife. <laughs> yeah, so, so it was possible. It was before yeah. fear, fear, uh, fear and Loathing uh, Las Vegas and, and right at astronaut's wife. So I really wanted him and other people that were involved with him. He's like, why would you want him? He's over <laughs> over the hill and he's overrated and boy, were they wrong. But anyway, uh, so so I really want him. And then uh, he passed and and uh, a lot of people were like, get Skeet Ulrich because Scream was big. Of course, that's what people would say at that yeah, time. Yeah, of course. Anyway, uh, and... Uh, <laughs> get and Skeet then, Ulrich instead of Johnny Depp. What right, a, exactly. what a of the moment thing to say. Totally, totally. <laughs> anyway, and then Blade came out. And this is a, a thing that I think a lot of writers, uh, and it just happened to me recently again too, that feeling when you've spent all this time writing a script and this whole thing, and you see the whole vision in your head, and then you see somebody else make it, or, or at least something close yeah, enough. Too mm. close is always too this. close that if you do yours now, it's like, well, you made a blade ripoff. Yay! Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and and again, me being stupid uh and being too oh, I know, I, I don't want to be someone second, should have still fucking made it because Underworld came out a few years later, still the oh. same fucking idea, still a hit. It was just, they added werewolves to it. Mine were vampires, so they, but you know, but it was still like, no, I, I probably should have done that too. I'm just a fucking idiot. And <laughs> decided, no, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to make the convent. Um, <laughs> anyway, mm. um, so, and I'll tell you why I did that in, in a minute. So, um, okay, so, that happens right so uh, my dreams are crushed this this big movie i wanted to to make uh now i feel as a copy and i just you know you just get on i i i don't know if it happens to to you guys or you know or other writers out there but when something happens like that 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 project that you were so excited about it's just it just it's just deflated you're just like i can't i can't get excited about this now i can't th mm -hmm. make this my passion i feel it's you know um it's been done now so um anyway so i kind of didn't focus on that and uh sleepy hollow it came in and i i was like oh my god i love Legend of sleepy hollow when and you say time, it came in like what do you mean script script okay, uh, okay. that my agent sent me uh you know you, you should check this out uh, was that oh i'm andrew sorry and, and i, I should have a script i'm sorry what was that the andrew kevin walker yeah. script oh, okay yeah, absolutely yeah yeah right. was uh, this and, after kevin yeager because I think he was attached at one point. It right? was after Kevin Yeager. Yes, exactly. It was in between Kevin Yeager and Tim Burton, to be exact. So um, anyway, and let me finish on other things. Oh, I was, sorry. I, yeah, yeah. Yeah, sorry. I was offered really fast. The other one that I didn't do, which hurt, but but I, I wasn't a good movie. Uh, this uh, uh, Chow Yun Fat movie called The Corrupter uh, mm. with Mark Wahlberg. And um, and I that that one, I just again, if I knew how things worked a little better, I probably would have done it. it just the producers told me they weren't going to rewrite it they're like no no the script's perfect the executives at new line felt differently and i should have gone to them uh you know and talked about it but the producers told me like we're not rewriting it and and it and i they did rewrite it because it was like even the movie they made was different than the script which was like let's get chow yun fat and bring him to America and not have any action in it, you know? And I was just like, what, what, why the <laughs> fuck would anyone want to see that? You know? <laughs> so, so I, I told them, I'm just, no, I mean, unless he's flying through the air with two guns, I'm not interested. And this is a, you know, um, and no surprise, the movie did not 
light the world on fire. Yeah. Um, so, so or, no, nor did Idle Hands, to be fair, even though I liked it. And I, I think they did a wonderful job with it. So um, anyway, and, and yes, here I am thinking I'm doing my big vampire thing. And Sleepy Hollow has just landed on my desk. And of course, I, I read a Andrew Kevin Walker script and, and loved it immediately. And my agent was like, look, it's going to be a little bit of a fight because, you know, they want someone bigger. But, you know, I, I think they'd give you a chance. I think you, you'd, you'd listen to it. They'd listen to you. Uh, Scott Rudin's the producer. Let me call Scott and see if I could get a, a meeting, you know, or whatever. So I go in, uh, do the meeting. They, they like me. And, uh, you know, and my agent tells like, look, they don't know if they, they, I don't, they don't know if Paramount would green light you, but if you did a trailer, um, you know, and kind of show them what you can do. I think you can, you can get past this. And I'm like, well, how do I do that? I mean, I'm not, I don't have money, you know, or I don't have that much money. Uh, and they're like, well, you know, no, Scott, Scott Rudin would pay for it, you know, and they would be out of their discretionary fund. And, uh, you know, and I'm like, oh my God, like how much do you think you would need? And I, I think I just blurted out like, uh, $20,000, uh, <laughs> or whatever, I think it was just random arbitrary number or whatever. And so, uh, sure enough, they, they, they were true to their word wow. and, uh, and, uh, gave me money to make a sleepy hollow trailer. And, uh, that was really excited. We, we got, uh, you know, Sable ranch, which I think is, has burned down, unfortunately, since, uh, we got, um, uh, Tony Gardner to do the, the headless horseman. Wait, what else was oh, shot wow. at Sable? Uh, you know, hatchet uh, was the last the one of the last things that was shot there, but all, all sorts of things. Sable Ranch that wasn't the Friday the 13th place, probably. I mean, so oh, many maybe, things. Okay. I mean, anything that was shot in Los Angeles, yeah. um, you know, that that was kind of a woodsy thing was often often Sable Ranch. Anyway, so. Um, so, yeah, so we have all the accoutrements and, and one of the things and on the many regrets, because hindsight is 2020 that they said is like, you should get the Paramount casting people to cast it. And I'm like, no, no, I, I'll use my friends and stuff. That was stupid. That was just another dumb, <laughs> just dumb to say. I'm just telling you all the dumb shit I did that I regret uh, <laughs> or whatever. Because now, now knowing that it was for Scott Rudin and stuff, like we probably could have gotten some pretty kick-ass fucking people uh, to, to be in it. But, you know, I wanted to promote my acting friends. Uh, and uh, I, you know, and again, and I, I was just such a, and still am, I mean, it's just something I don't know it sometimes it helps me sometimes it hurts me I'm just such a we can do it filmmaker like I'll make it work it's, yeah, just just get me filming a camera it's gonna be great it's gonna be awesome <laughs> and sometimes that works and sometimes it absolutely does not um and so uh and and you know it was my DP who shot my first film killers and and uh you know we had a great time doing it it was it was pretty cool and and it, it was you know a very indie crew but I think an indie crew that was as excited to be working that was even though loosely that was funded by a studio that had like a real like you know catering and shit like that like I remember all the indie guys just couldn't believe that like oh is this steak like <laughs> steak for lunch uh and th that was very exciting anyway so um so the first tragedy that happens when you hire an indie crew is, you know, a lot of the times as I'm about to go into a production next month and, you know, you have to ask, hey, do you have a recommendation for this? I don't have this. And I needed a sound guy. And so I had a sound guy uh, that came in. And I, again, I thought everything was fine until we got to the dailies. And, and they're like, how come everything is uh, distorted and bad? Uh, and this guy had oh, like, no. there's like um. Uh, like a modulator that you you put it so like if somebody screams it doesn't all blow out he had that on the entire thing so the entire thing was blown out uh. so this huge opportunity that paramount and scott rudin had given me 
was I'm not going to say completely demolished, but but pretty much totally demolished by this fucking idiot who didn't know how he's a sound recorder on the thing. And uh, and so we had to ADR the entire thing. And it's really bad. It's not great. And and, and again, we were on the Paramount thing a lot to mix it. And, you know, and and, uh, uh, anyway, I did the trailer. I, I remember thinking it, it was pretty cool at the time but now i look at it and i go like yeah what a piece of shit it's actually pretty terrible and i'm actually kind of embarrassed about it uh <laughs> well so well this this is a pretty unique topic the idea of making yeah your your sizzle trailer basically my sizzle trailer absolutely but, um, i mean it I mean, does can you, happen can you, you talk know? what you remember about even just that i mean kind of a twofold question first off just what was it but also like what like what process did you use thinking about to figure out like, well, what parts am I going to pull out of the script to make my perfect trailer? If you I mean, can this, still this remember. Is definitely going back a minute, but, but from what I recall, I think I went through the script and then I think I would highlight moments that felt like good trailer moments as far as good scenes that like good dialogue that kind of got the story across uh, and good, like, like moments of the headless horseman rearing up or whatever. And so I sort of, kind of you know backwards engineered a trailer you know of like well i took i made a took the script and then kind of wrote a script for the trailer and then kind of like did things you know that that you could see or that we could pull off on twenty thousand dollars or whatever and again even though that's a little you know that's a bit of money back then you're shooting on 35 millimeter you have to yeah. develop it you have to transfer it you're wow. building a headless horseman you have horses you have did you, you know, have a headless horseman yeah. Wow. Yeah, Tony Gardner did it. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. Uh, Tony Gardner did it. Wow. Yeah, That's huge. Absolutely. And in fact, I, I mean, this is one of those weird things. And I I have to, this kind of goes back into, which ultimately should be kind of the topic uh, about like you write something and then somebody else does it. Uh, how much is that coincidence and how much it isn't? The Tim Burton one is pretty damn fucking exact to what we did. Uh, I not and I not that I think that Tim Burton had nothing better to do than like, hey, let's see what these kids did and we'll see. I don't <laughs> think that happened, but but uh, but it was pretty. It was very much the same design: ragged burgundy cape, uh, black kind of chest piece or whatever with the collar or whatever. It was pretty much exact. So uh, it, the only thing is that you know. Well, okay, I'll get to that in a second. Anyway, so, so um, we do it. Uh, they like it. They have some notes. Scott Rudin gives me notes. A uh, fun thing, even though I made this thing for Scott Rudin, he would never take, he would never get on the phone. I can say this now because I think he's canceled. I, I think. Yeah, I don't think you need to worry about Scott Rudin. <laughs> I, I, maybe Other than fun- him just personally coming to your house and well but that was what you. was so funny but, about it is that he's a very slippery individual where you'd call him and he'd call you back, but he did this thing. It worked better for offices. It doesn't work so well when you work at home, like I do. Um, What he'd do is that he'd have his assistant call. If you pick up, they'd hang up. And then if you weren't home and the answering machine picked up, Scott Rudin would come on and say, hi, returning for Mike Mendez and, and, and get off the line. I always wondered like, this is not a coincidence because there's so many times people were calling and hanging up and you see the caller ID or whatever. And you're like, what the fuck? You know, this is something. <laughs> and so one day I decided to try to trap him and wait till Scott was recording the message. This is when we actually had, you know, 
it's funny how how much things advance in 20 some years you know this is when we had the, the little answering machine tapes and so people were recording mm-hmm. and you pick up you know while they were doing so while he was recording uh, i would pick up and go hey scott and then he'd hang up <laughs> <laughs> and the assistant would come out like i lost him i don't know what happened i, I don't know anyway so i hand it in i do their notes i go in there as far as i know they at least they kind of at least insinuated me or told me that, hey, everybody loves it. We're going to do it, you know, or whatever. So I, I'm thinking, hey, you know, and this is why I probably should have taken Idle Hands and not, I think I'm doing my vampire movie. I think I'm doing Sleepy Hollow. You know, life's fucking, you know, I'm on top of the world as far as my, you know, false mental, you know, <laughs> image of things. Uh, and then one day my agent calls, he's like, hey, just want you to know, uh, Tim Burton's doing Sleepy Hollow. Uh, my Sleepy Hollow? Yeah, you're Sleepy Hollow. Like, oh, I mean, that's a good choice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good choice. We are going to hit pause right here and pick things back up in the next episode as we continue our conversation with director Mike Mendez. If you'd like more content from us, you should follow us on Twitter at Never Made Film and Instagram at Best Movies Never Made. You should also download the Electric Now app so you can watch video of our podcast and all the podcasts on the Electric Surge Network. We'd like to thank everyone here at Electric Surge, including Bill Ritter and our producers, Mark Altman and Dean Devlin. Until next time, this is Josh Miller and Steven Scarlatta saying we won't see you at the movies. This show was produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.